Welcome to Unlocking Brand, a part of our Siegel & Gale Says podcast series. Here, our global brand experts host live case studies, deliver actionable insights, and answer key questions on the topics that matter to brand marketers today. In this episode, our president for EMEA, Philip Davies, and director of insights for EMEA, Ben Osborne, discuss the importance of fact-based branding and how research can drive customer engagement and loyalty. This is Siegel and Gale Says. Uh, hello, welcome everybody to another in the series of uh, Unlocking Brand from Siegel and Gale. Unlocking Brand is where we take a peek behind the curtain in terms of how our practitioners work in the work they do in, in building and creating brands. And today we're going to be in conversation with uh, Ben Osborne, who, who is head of insights across the EMEA region. My name is Philip Davies. I'm president of Siegel and Gale in EMEA. And we're going to talk about measurement over management today. And uh, we'll discuss fact-based branding and how research can you know, really bring richness and drive engagement and improve customer loyalty for brands as well. And it's one of our abiding philosophies. First of all, let me just give you a little bit of background on Siegel and Gale. And um, as you'll see, some of the brands that we have created over the years, first one you just saw there was the, the MBA logo, really, when we first started in 1969. Both of those speak to the, the way we work, which is based on the philosophy of simplicity. That's our, our driving principle in how we work. And it's also based on, on facts and how we work to the truth of brands and find the evidence based branding to make sure that brands really can be true to themselves as well. So when we look at what facts can do, they give confidence and they give confidence in, in allowing us to make those creative leaps that are necessary when it comes to branding. For brands like the NBA, for brands like Glorigen, and also for brands like McLaren and many others around the world that we work on, where we were able to unlock the truth of that brand and make sure that story is told really, really faithfully and really, really well. So our, our sort of way of working is, is really to start with those facts. And it's it's our, our way of approaching any assignment is to really look at that philosophy of facts matter. So when we work in this way, we're able to also utilize our some of our tools that we use. And we have a suite of different uh, quantitative and qualitative measurement tools that we're able to work with. So I really would like to introduce now at this point, uh, Ben Osborne to you. I mentioned he was he was the, really the conversation we're, we're having today with Ben about the work he does in unlocking the truths behind brands and 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 some of the ways that he he does that. So um, Ben, over to you and w- welcome to this conversation this afternoon. No, thanks so much, Philip. And, and, and hi, everyone. Again, it's kind of a, a real pleasure to be part of this series and to be talking about something really important to me, which is which is facts, which is the the, the research behind this. And a question I get asked all the time is some examples of scenarios when we would use facts or research in a brand project. And, you know, here, this is a good idea, I think, about the underlying philosophy, some of the products we use. But essentially, the, well, my role tends to kind of come in, in in two parts of a project. One is facts-based branding, which is what we're really talking about here. Really important if you're dealing with an existing brand or an existing culture or an existing product. The other side is removing guesswork removing guesswork from decision making, giving people again, like Philip was saying, the confidence to move forward, to make smarter decisions, to get it right first time. But uh, but yeah, I remember when I first joined and, and Philip, you might remember this or not, but one of the first things that Philip said to me was, 
the fact that at Siegel and Gale, we don't invent brands. We we find them. We discover what it is that's extraordinary. And, and in my time here, I think I've been here now seven years. It's, it's a truth that essentially every company, every brand, every organization has something that is extraordinary at the heart of it, whether it's the people, whether it's the history, whether it's the products, whether it's the brand. And, and I guess my job is almost uh, to discover that. And, and without sounding ridiculous and hyperbole, you know, it's a bit more like Indiana Jones than and Steve Jobs, you know, you're actually doing some archaeology rather than alchemy. You're discovering something and digging into it, which is quite exciting. And I guess that's why, uh, yeah, why I come to work every day, I think. So in, in that spirit of going exploring, then let's move on. Let's move into the, into the meat of this. And, and also in the spirit of simplicity and almost in a Nick Hornby-esque style, thinking about what are the, what are the top three questions you know, really we should be asking when it comes to brand management from the, the lens that you look at it through when it comes to digging out those core truths? No, absolutely. And 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 obviously, when, when we first, first started thinking about brand measurement, the big thing for me is brand measurement must always be a means to an end rather than an end unto itself. So what is that end? That end is brand management. And, you know, th- this is an image which I often use when kind of trying to convey this point. Um, sometimes companies measure just to justify a seat at the boardroom just to kind of get in the conversation. You need to have a metric or a KPI to make sure you're kind of uh, able to speak the language of, of the CEO and kind of get some credibility there. But really, it's easy to forget that we are trying to manage brands. We are trying to understand what truly matters, to make a decision for the future, to create future value in the real world rather than just in this boardroom. And an example I always come back to in terms of this is. NPS, Net Promoter Score, really credible in the boardroom, really, really popular amongst the C-suite. And you can kind of report back this one number score, which reflects the experience in the eyes of the consumer, tried and tested, lots and lots of benchmarks, lots and lots of benchmarks. But if you just look at this number, it doesn't tell you what to do. It gives you no understanding of what the optimal number should be, how large that number could be, how far you can stretch. And it actually just leaves you kind of, you know, worshipping this number rather than asking the question. So if you think about those three questions, kind of going back to your point, Philip, the first question is, why am I doing this? You know, what is the means? What, what is the end that you're trying to work towards? I think that's really important. The next is how will measurement support decisions that we have to make? You know, that is the kind of big thing we're trying to do. We're trying to make smarter decisions, make the right decision to avoid having to, to come back to these questions time and time again. And also the final point is what's the simplest way to achieve this? Because complexity is never a good thing. And if you put all of this logic together, um, and it's a controversial thought, but I, I really come back to the idea of, of brand valuation being something which falls into this trap. So brand valuation, obviously, really powerful, really important for a business. Essentially, what we're trying to do is get to a monetary value, a calculation which shows the financial value of a brand, the benefit of owning that brand and future ownership towards that. A number that a lot of the C-suite kind of going back towards the left of this image really like because it's a big number that can make them feel like they're doing a good job or make them feel that, you know, that their company has value, that their, their investment has value. But there's a lot of issues with it. First, if you think about the inputs for brand valuation, one input is a survey. So we're looking at performance of the brand in the eyes of the consumers. Another input is brand contribution, usually, again, calculated through that survey, but specifically looking at the strength of the brand in the consumer's mind at the point of decision. So actually looking at the the contribution of that brand at that selection compared to other things. 
And then the third things tend to be a, a real suite of complex financial information, whether it comes from quarterly reports, annual reports, whether it comes from you know forensic accounting within the organization. But there's lots and lots and lots of complexity. And I remember when I first started um, learning about brand valuation, there was uh, two different companies, two different complex methodologies were trying to calculate the value of Google. And one methodology came up with 85 billion, one came up with, I believe, 115 billion, and another at 135 billion. And those massive swings immediately make you realize that there's no credibility in this because the complexity has injected just too many variables. The other thing with uh, brand valuation is you can't compare apples with apples because if you're reliant on all of this very, very complex, sensitive financial information, you can't get that for your competitors. You can't compare to actually see how you're doing in the real world versus other brands. And also the other thing is you can't trend it. You know, if you have to wait for the annual report, you have to wait for all of this data. And, you know, I always say that good, good data is worth waiting for, but you can't actually use brand valuation in a strategic way because you are not able to trend it. You're not able to look at what the actual trend is it, it, apart from in that specific time zone. So I've, I've kind of rambled a lot about this, but I think the key thing here is that at Siegel & Gale, we recognize that brand valuation is a thing. We do need to kind of meet the needs of our clients in a specific arena, but our focus is on brand contribution. So one of those three inputs rather than all the rest of them. And brand contribution is something where you can compare apples with apples because you can look at the contribution of your brand compared to other brands in a robust way, you are able to cut it by subgroups, by segments, by, by bits, the, the different divisions of the business, different products, you're able to trend it. And that immediately means that measurement is a tool for management because you're able to make some nuanced, smart, strategic decisions with it. So yeah, it's a trap that I think a lot of people and companies fall into, but there are ways to get around this, this trap that we're kind of talking about, this gap between measurement and management. That's really hard. You know what, Ben, I remember those Google valuations and I remember how ridiculous they were in terms of, gosh, how can, how can it be so wide? So, you know, when you, when you look at that, and I guess, you know, what we're talking about there is a lot around quantitative measurement and, and the, the complexities of that, but also then how you can turn that, that measurement also into a very useful tool. Talk a little bit about, you know, the, the best approach. Is it always quant over qual or, or how would you approach that? No, it's a good question. And, um, you know, with, without being the using the, the traditional, I guess, researcher cop out, I guess the best is probably the best of both worlds. It is probably something holistic, because if we think about quant, it gives us the robustness. It gives us some real confidence in the decisions we're trying to make, really validating thinking, really kind of informing decisions. But when it comes to qual, you can't really beat qual in terms of the richness you can get to. You know, if you think about a quant survey, you can ask an individual question, yes, no, or, or a scale or something like that, but you're not really tapping into this kind of human element. And if you think about the way that humans think, you know, it, it's, it's we're kind of programmed and socialized that if we're asked the question, why, our first response is to kind of answer very, very quickly. So if you kind of ask someone, why do you use one brand over another? It's a very, very functional response. It's the cheapest, it's the best, it's the one I've always used. And in quant, you kind of stop there. But with qual, you can then say why again. You can kind of keep saying why, keep probing, keep probing. And again, as, as human beings, we're socialized to kind of find it awkward to keep asking why. But in my profession, we, we persist. We keep kind of pushing. And the key reason there, um, I've actually got another slide here, which kind of summarizes that, 
we have an approach at Siegel and Gale called uh, Decision Mapper. And what we find is that if you ask someone why they prefer one brand over another, typically their first answer is going to be very, very rational. They're going to talk very, very high level, live, uh, very, very high level. Then if you start to probe them, so for example, why does it matter that this brand is the cheapest or the best? Then they're going to start to get some functional underlying rational parameters within that. So for example, the positive effects of something being cheap or something being the best. But if you keep probing, you can get to this emotional level and you can unlock the emotional drivers, which especially when you're dealing with B2B brands is solid gold. You can get to the signature emotion that can define the ideal experience. You can look at how well a brand matches this. And actually on the right here, you've got some really cool logic maps. So for example, what we first do is we keep asking why is you start to map how that consumer or that decision maker sees the world, how they make decisions, how they trade things off. And then if you ask about the brand and their strengths and weaknesses and map that brand against this, I guess, let's say framework or this logic map they've created for themselves, you get a really meaningful understanding of where that brand is strong, where it's weak, where you're not tapping into emotions enough and how you can leverage emotion better, which again is massively powerful for branding. But I guess the key thing here is kind of going back to where I started. The true answer is, is you need both. The, the best response is a holistic response. You need the depth and you need the breadth. You need the robustness. You need the richness, the inside out and the outside in. And that's what's really powerful. And kind of coming back to something which, you know, we're talking about measurement. We're going to come to, to KPIs eventually. When I think about KPIs, sometimes the, the KPI owner just jumps straight to a metric, which could be NPS, something like that. Whereas actually the, the KPI should not be a single metric. It should be a combination of metrics that gives you that holistic view. It could be in theory, one internal metric and one external metric, which ladders up to this KPI, which obviously has to then feed a strategy or an objective behind that. And something really interesting when you kind of think about it like that and the need to balance, let's say, the employee view and the customer view is a lot of companies aren't set up like that. You might have, again, as me as the insight guy, I'm very aware of this. There might be an insight team or a brand team that owns some metrics from one survey. And then the HR team might own another set of metrics from another survey. And that creates a bit of tension when it comes to seeing this, the holistic view that we're kind of talking about here. That's great. I've, I'm Ben, you know, having been someone that's enjoyed the output of Decision Mapper many times as well, uh, just hearing you talk about it there does remind me of some of the some of the really powerful learnings that we've had from it as well and some of the assignments we've worked on together, which have been fantastic. And, you know, just also just listening then one from the external point of view, but, you know, we know that, you know, you know best in class customer experiences you know, it really comes from a best in best in class employee experience first, and often that's that's where great brands really begin. We we know that often it'd be difficult to get a true sense of how employees feel, though. So how do you sort of find that information? How can you also then just sort of find a way of measuring employee sentiment really accurately? How do you go about that? Yeah, it's an interesting one because if you think about the the term employee engagement, is really interesting for a researcher because. I guess it's the name of a practice in a lot of companies. It's also the name of the, the thing you're trying to achieve, the end result. And it's also the name often used for the metric itself. So employee engagement has obviously been around. It's, it's a term since the 1990s. Widely known, I'm sure everyone on this call has kind of had some sort of exposure to an employee engagement program or project or outcome or something along those, those lines. And I guess that term itself is quite synonymous with with the concept of employee sentiment, how you might measure employee sentiment. 
And in my time, again, I've seen quite a lot of different ways that companies have approached measuring employee engagement, but typically it is a measure of commitment. You know, the idea is that an engaged employee is more committed to the business. They're more likely to be committed to the the organization's goals, the outcomes, the values. They're more likely to stay with that company because of that level of engagement. But what's really interesting when you start looking at it through the lens of a, a brand program, commitment isn't enough. You know, if you think about commitment in its own, it can be a massively powerful tool for retention. But brand programs need need a lot more from employees. And actually, what we have at Siegel and Gale is a really interesting segmentation analysis uh, framework called Engage. And what we do is we look at employee engagement, so emotional commitment to a brand. It could be the brand values. It could be the brand purpose. It could be the organization in a kind of less defined sense. But the other thing we look at is understanding. And understanding is really interesting. If you think about like the traditional brand champion, they're very, very committed, but they're also very, very knowledgeable because in theory, they're the company's advocates, the storytellers, the people who amplify the brand measures and go out of their way to speak to customers along the way. Really, really important for any, um, let's say, brand launch program, as well as really, really useful for me at the beginning of a project where you want to understand what's actually really authentic and true at the center of a brand's value or its culture. So brand champions, commitment's important, but understanding's also important. If you still use this construct, obviously, if we don't have commitment and we don't have understanding, then people are disengaged. Essentially, you're leaving them behind. Often, these people are the guys who are newest for an organization. They might be the youngest people for the organization. Also, interestingly, in my experience, they might be the minority groups. So people where they're, they're, say their managers haven't always spent enough time from them. Maybe they've been excluded historically. So again, disengaged are quite important, but it's a relatively clear strategy. You need to educate them and you need to engage them along the way. But the group which I'm most interested in is the wild cards. And again, the wild cards interesting name. I'm sure a lot of people's eyes are kind of drawn straight to me, to, straight there. But what you have here is a group of people who are extremely committed for the organization, but they're misinformed. Either they have, let's say, um, not understood what they've been taught. Maybe they've been with a company for so long that they're still hanging to previous values, even maybe a previous culture when there was, let's say, an M&A, two companies come together and they're still seeing themselves in the old world. But what wildcards do is essentially because they are such have such belief for their own understanding of what the company is, is they're going around amplifying incorrect terminology, incorrect values, and they're disrupting the whole brand process. So whereas your champions are aligned, they're advocates, they amplify what we do as branding agency, as a, as a brand consultancy, the wildcards are going out of their way to disrupt it. Not intentionally. They don't know. Um, again, I've had another client recently who called these guys, gosh, I'm going to... Unintentional terrorists, I think, was the right word, which, again, I think is quite nice if you think about how big an impact they can have in the negative, let's say, in the work we do. So if you think about traditional brand engagement, which is defined as commitment, you cannot tell apart champions from wildcards. So if you think about how to measure employee sentiment in the most robust way, you need understanding and commitment. And, and obviously, your minds are all going to go straight away to how you understand if someone genuinely has the correct knowledge of the brand, the values, or whether they just say it. Because in surveys, especially when you speak to employees, even when you tell them it's anonymous, people are going to exaggerate. So what we tend to do and engage is we have one question, which is, you know, 
to what extent do you feel like you understand the brand, the values, the purpose, however we define it? The next question we might say something like, well, how confident would you be explaining it to another employee, a new joiner? And obviously some people are going to start to think, yeah, actually, when you frame it like that, I'm, I'm not as knowledgeable as I thought. But then the next thing we do is we show the employee in the survey a number of different values. Some are correct and some are incorrect. And the idea is not to expose them as being false or, or, or misleading us in the survey. We never tell them if they get it right or wrong. But by having that sort of, let's say, exercise where they have to show and demonstrate to us, prove to us they actually have the knowledge, we get a really robust read about the proportion who think they know, the proportion who truly know. And then we know that and we can kind of start to make some very sharp strategies. And again, the joys of of doing it through a survey and, and having this mechanic is we can cut the data by different offices, by different divisions, by different tenures, different, let's say, uh, demographics and get a really clear view where we need to focus our brand-led change programs and brand engagement programs to make the biggest impact. That's great. That expression for wildcards got me, Ben. I, I, I was trying to think what, what they were called. I, I, I was sort of thinking about dangerous enthusiasts, but unintentional terrorists is really is really quite something. That, that's a, Less that's controversial, a, though. I like that. Isn't it? It is a bit. I quite like that. You know, one, one thing I was just thinking while pe- people are looking at that and thinking, okay, the, what's the frequency of, of something like an engage? You know, from your experience, how often is, is it wise to, to run something like that within, within an organization? No, it's, it's a very good question. And one of the things which I've learned over, over the years is obviously the best thing we can do is to work with the HR teams and often build on what already exists. And so you will have some HR teams who have a very strong opinion that they can only ask an employee survey once every year or once every six months because of fatigue and concerns like that. But in my experience, what's really great about employee research is because it is such a captive audience, you can see changes much quicker. You can, let's say, if, if we were to do a big brand rollout, a brand activation, within three months, you'll start to see change. So let's say within the first three months, you might see the proportion of brand champions grow by small amounts. Then within six months, you might see a more significant amount. Within nine months, you might see a very significant amount of change. And so if we kind of take that as our our measure of employee sentiment, the proportion who are brand champions, yeah, there are rewards for actually tracking that relatively frequently and actually quite quickly after a, an activation program yeah that's great so we so we've got the we've got the employees all pointing in the right direction they know the story that they've they've got the knowledge of the story and they're committed to it as well they've got the new brand and therefore then they're, they're going to be transmitting that and really to to customers and when we you know, we've talked about those employees but what about the most sort of loyal customers how do you go about what should you be asking them no, it's a, it's a good question. And, and kind of similar to the, the point I was making on, on HR, you know, it's, it's often what we want to do is, is come up with, with measurements, come up with frameworks, come up with approaches, which are relatively a light lift to instigate and, and, and launch, but also that can fit in with what already exists, right? We're not trying to, to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to be disruptive for the sake of it we know that we're kind of providing a very specific function and to kind of um you know contradicting myself from what i was saying earlier about mps mps is something which is not going away and so if you think about loyalty you look at customer satisfaction customer engagement mps is a very 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 great 
score because it has that credibility with the C-suite. It is so so widely used. The key thing here is actually, you know, how do we start to unlock MPS and turn it from something which is purely a measurement tool to a brand management tool, moving from monitoring to measuring to, to management. And what we've done specifically at uh, Siegel & Gales, we've come up with a proprietary approach called Pinpoint. And what Pinpoint does is it runs analytical modeling, looking at the individual touch points and correlates that back to MPS to understand which touch points are most important to drive that MPS score. The key thing to note there is that, you know, it's easier said than done because, um, you know, depending on when you ask the NPS score, depending on how often you ask it, typically it kind of, you know, if you, that, that sort of questionnaire, that sort of study ignores the fact that touch points are correlated, they're related. And I remember when I first was introduced to Pinpoint and the, the methodology behind it and what makes, makes it quite unique, the comparison or the, the, the story of um, airlines. So if you think about the best airline journey of your life, let's say that Emirates sends a car to your door, so you get like a free taxi to the airport. Let's say you get business class check-in, so straight away you wait for no more than a couple of minutes. Let's say you then kind of get a, through security in 30 seconds, so they open up a gate just as you come in, so it's really smooth. Go to the first class lounge, have an amazing meal, get to the plane and you've been upgraded, perfect kind of flatbed, perfect seat, really great entertainment system. Then you land in your destination and your luggage has been lost. And that's the point in time when they ask you for an MPS score. Obviously, your MPS score is going to be terrible. And all of the previous experiences are sort of uh, rolled into one. What Pinpoint does, which is quite smart and through some proprietary um, analytics, is we start to pull apart those individual experiences and look at them in isolation by interpolating some of the gaps in the data it's late in the day here in, in the EU, so I'm not going to go into interpolation, but essentially there's some really smart modeling there, which allows us to understand the incremental impact of different touch points. And what this allows us to do is first create some cool outputs like this, which show, let's say, the overall incidence of a touch point, so which, which touch points are most common, but also their importance in terms of driving MPS. So immediately you can make some quite smart decisions, kind of going back to how you manage MPS in terms of where your loyalty is coming from, which different experiences are contributing to that loyalty in the greatest extent. And immediately you can kind of, you know, proportion, uh, spend your money in the right way to optimize this experience, to start to lean in and leverage these, let's say, signature experiences, which have greatest impact. The other thing that we can do with Pinpoint, kind of taking it to the next level, is we can take all of that smart analytics and we can put it into a simulator. And so rather than coming out with something like this and showing the real world state of play, we can actually show the optimal combination of touch points to get the optimal maximized MPS score. And that's something so powerful. If you can go to the C-suite, go to your bosses and say, you know, we've calculated the ideal experience if we want to optimize MPS. And we also know what that optimized MPS score could look like. So really clear outputs for building an experience strategy, for having a a sensible conversation in the boardroom and also giving us a real framework for measuring success over time again because this is something we can track something we can follow and because it again syncs up to mps which has that you know is already accepted is ready already widely used yeah that's great that really does speak to you know the, the power of facts and the, how they can in, in influence those important decisions 
So I know you're, you're um, one of your phrases, Ben, I know you're always, always using is the compelling truth. Thinking sort of the broader than specific experiences to the whole brand and the role of, of the brand, is it possible to measure why a person prefers one brand over another and then explore how they make those decisions in, in that? Yes. And if you think about obviously decision mapping, we've talked about the the qualitative answer to that. So if we were just purely wanting to understand and and have a view and and, and have like a, a relatively rich conversation about decision making, that's one thing. But when it comes to measurement, it kind of goes back to the all the things I was kind of saying in terms of the weaknesses of if you say if you ask someone why, they're going to give you a very, very direct answer. And just kind of even laboring that further, you know, typically. The first answer that people give us, it could be politically correct. It could be kind of telling us what they want, they want, they, they think we want to hear, being polite. It could be that you're exaggerating because you're in a survey and you're feeling important. You, you feel like this is something that that you want to kind of get across. It can be also something where where consumers or, or respondents, let's say, in a survey, either intentionally or unintentionally lie to us. You know, that that is something which actually happens. And so what we need to do is find ways of getting beneath the surface of the data, really understanding the relationships between what people say and what they do. And the way we do this is through analytics, is through modeling, is through relatively smart approaches. And some people on the the call are going to be thinking, this sounds a lot like Max Diff. It sounds a lot like conjoint studies. You know, conjoints, again, I'm not going to go too specific at this time of of, of the day, but conjoints are when you give people bundles of um, packages, let's say, and they make decisions between them. So you might have a brand, a description of a product, the price, other sort of parameters, and they kind of trade off between them. Essentially, what we have in this situation is an artificial decision-making environment because most people don't have access to all that information at the point of selection. You know, the one exception is probably the supermarket where you can pick up two boxes of cereal, read them, look at them together, but for a lot of our clients, people aren't thinking about that. They're thinking about how they feel about that brand on a subconscious level. They're kind of recalling memories. They're, they're making trade-offs without all of that perfect information. So what we do is we have an approach called eye-opener. Well, firstly, what we do is, is show two brands head-to-head, and we ask people to show us the extent that they prefer one brand over the other by moving a cursor towards the brand they prefer. So if you think about it, let's say you've got A and B, you can nudge a little bit off the fence towards one brand, but pretty much stay undecided. You can swing all the way towards brand A. You can swing all the way back to brand B. And that gives us a massive amount of information, which isn't that dissimilar from the amount of information we might get with a conjoint. So that's how we would measure preference, which is really, really powerful, really, really, let's say, granular uh, scale that we can use as a, a dependent variable into modeling. The next thing we need to look at is the, the other variables, the independent variables, specifically in this situation would be branding attributes. So how you can describe the brand. Positioning statements is something else you might describe this. So if we think about that, we've got a really robust score for this. Again, we can ask branding attributes using a similarly robust scale, but the most important thing is actually what branding attributes you include. And often in research, we're massively confined by space, I remember when I started off being told, you know, you don't want more than 10 statements because consumers get really bored and really tired. And so you're having to trade off what you think is important. You end up almost just describing your own brand. But what we want with these branding statements, these branding attributes, 
we think about them as the building blocks of brands, building blocks of brands in our category, we should be able to combine these building blocks in lots of different ways and build every single brand in that space. If we cannot describe every single brand using those building blocks, then we're missing building blocks. We need to expand on them. And the way we kind of approach that to make sure we have the full expanse of different things going into this is we tend to look at a number of different things. We first think, well, what are you known for? Think about all the things that a brand could be known for. So the reputation, its scale, its geographical spread. We think about how people might describe products in the category. We think about how they might describe employees, the talent, the people in this category. We think about the emotional payoff, the rational payoff. We think about anything else. And this gives a really long list of custom attributes. The next thing we do is we look at these attributes and make sure that they're all, let's say, completely distinct and singular. So, you know, we're not saying that one attribute should be a brand that is distinctive and memorable. We're seeing distinctive as one thing. We're seeing memorable as another thing. We would split them as separate attributes, separate inputs into that modeling. And then the final thing we do is the modeling itself. So we've got the attributes. We've got the full breadth of, of different ways that people can perceive brands, describe brands. We then put this into a very smart tool called iOpener. And some people may, may be familiar with iOpener. Some people might not. But the key thing here is that we know that you know not all brands are equal. We also know that not all attributes are equal. Some things are easier to agree with than others. Some things are more important than others. And the reason that that's important is because traditional driver's analysis tends to ignore that. Traditional driver's analysis looks at the correlation between, let's say, big brands and, you know, and, and highly ranked attributes and the smaller brands and the less rated attributes. And what you tend to do is you explain why big brands are big and you explain why small brands are small. And if we were to use that as a strategic brand consultancy, we would end up just building me too brands because everyone just wants to be Ferrari, going back to McLaren earlier on. We'd build McLarens, um, build Ferrari, we'd build Porsches, we'd tell McLaren to act like them because that's what matters. But what we actually know is we need another dimension. And the dimension here is what we call business impact. So fund fundamental importance, traditional driver's analysis, the correlation between preference and an attribute to performance absolutely is critical. But business impact shows the incremental preference that can be unlocked if that brand or if a brand was to leverage that attribute further. And the easiest way to explain business impact um, is thinking about the US election. You know, not all states are equal. There's the swing states. And then there's the very entrenched states. We're essentially identifying those attributes which have swing in them. If we were to leverage them in a brand campaign, we can unlock incremental preference, differentiation, share. Absolutely critical. And by having this construct, we can separate the key drivers, the things which are both fundamentally important and have incremental impact, from the minimum expectations, those table stakes, those things which once you reach the desired level, you're not going to actually unlock anything else. And a good example of a minimum expectation is often trust. You know, you're either trusted or you're not. You don't really see banks dialing up trust anymore because it's not differentiating. You can't unlock it. It's a, it's a cost of entry, but it's not something which is going to differentiate you. One thing which you'll kind of have noted with this, um, obviously impact's important, something which is really critical for Eibner, but even things with low fundamental importance with high impact are kind of falling into key drivers. And the reason is, is even though something isn't a driver today, if it has that incremental impact, 
it's really valuable as a tiebreaker for tomorrow. And especially if we don't want to make me too brands, we want to make brands which stand out for themselves, that differentiate themselves. A lot of those drivers, which also kind of, you know, have high impact, but relatively low importance today can be really critical because that's where the white space is often. And it's really kind of quite compelling, again, if we're trying to build brands which stand out to have those in our, on our disposal as well. The other thing about eye-opener is really interesting is how we report it. And Philip, this kind of comes back to your point on compelling truth. So eye-opener shows us what's compelling. So let's kind of go back to this. We think about if we start off with 40 branding attributes, we might find out that, you know, 10 are minimum expectations, 10 are non-drivers, 20 are key drivers and so are compelling to consumers, something which you can build a brand with. We then have to look at out of those 20 drivers, which of those are credible? That's where the truth comes from. And so again, in traditional research, when you're looking at brand performance, when you're measuring brand performance, measuring how people make decisions, you typically focus on the absolute performance of a brand. So brand A, let's say eight out of 10 people say that it is very strong for a specific attribute. But what you really want to look at is the relative performance to other brands in the category and understand, you know, in, in this specific example, if we look at the line on the right there between the gray and the black, let's say that's zero, looking at the gap to leader. So anything to the right of that line is where the brand in question is best in class. So with a leader of this is compelling, it's a driver, we should definitely play with that. The attributes colored in red are where we're not the leader and we're nowhere near the best in class. So we're actually, we've got a long way to catch up. So if we think about the attributes that we can credibly play with, we should discount those. And then the gray, let's say, is within one margin of error of that. So what we do is we end up, let's say, from starting with 40 branding attributes, you might end up with a handful which are both compelling and true. And this is absolutely what we should be measuring, absolutely what we should be focusing on in this specific case. That's great. And that's, it's very powerful. I know that. And it, it really does get to that all-important truth. And you know, as we were talking about earlier, gives gives brand owners and gives people who are managing brands real confidence where they can position themselves as well. You know, on that, in actual fact, what we should do also, Ben, is you know, if anyone has any questions that they'd like to throw our way, I'm going to keep an eye on the chat room here. If anyone wants to drop anything in there to um to ask Ben, then please, please do just just to type something in in that in the chat and we'll we'll come to that in, in a moment but before we do that i suppose that you know what ben there's always there was some some people who always sort of say well it's all about creativity and in some respects that's our point as well in that we are able to find where that that sweet spot is where where that point of confidence is where people can then go and develop brands but in answer to that that question you know does this take the creativity out of the branding process or do you see it from a completely different point of view? No, it's really interesting because, um, again, kind of I remember when I first started using a tool like iOpener and, you know, you start off with a really expansive palette of different attributes that you could give to a designer or give to a strategist and say that, you know, the sky's the limit. And you might end up going back to them after doing this analysis. And obviously, you know, the, the analysis in itself doesn't give us the answer, but it's a, it's a good indicator of what's important. But you might go back and give them a, a very small, let's say, suite of or palette of different attributes that they should be leveraging or, or really narrowing, let's say, their playing field. And so I was worried at first in terms of how our designers were going to respond to that and whether it was going to be something which stifles creativity. 
But what I find is actually it's could be really empowering. You know, the, the focus of really knowing what the foundational truth is, the, the confidence in knowing that this idea has been sold in. There's a lot of consensus in the organization about where we're heading and also the confidence to actually really build something that's bold to fulfill that specific need is something which is quite you know, empowering, is quite exciting, I think, for a designer. And the other thing which is really interesting is often if you don't have fact-based branding, you, let's say you go to a client with three different routes, whether it's a strategic route, whether it's the design route, and often you always get that situation where the client will turn around and say, I like route one and two, let's push them together. Or I like route one, two, and three, let's kind of, you know, create a Frankenstein. And this gives us the ability to say, no, we're not going to create a Frankenstein because we know this is what matters. We know this is where we're trying to get with this route. And it is kind of, again, taking us somewhere which is much bolder, much more exciting. And the key thing kind of, you know, to come back to the benefits of fact-based branding, we are making the, the right decision, at, you know, first time. Um, we're avoiding the need to kind of go back to the drawing board three years later. We're getting that consensus. We're getting a really rough, robust foundation. And all of these things feel very analytical. They feel very, you know, one side of the brain, not the creative side of the brain. But it does allow us to be creative. It gives us that, that confidence. It gives us that right to kind of do something which is much more, let's say, um, out of the box, something much more exciting. Yeah, very true. A creative, creative people involved in creative endeavors. They they love to know what the, the 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 parameters are as well. They can they can do what they like within that 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 parameter, but it's got to be defined. And that we know is actually something that actually gives gives great launch points to to get to very exciting exciting answers. Um, something we we haven't I suppose talked about is ROI, and you know when when and how you should measure brand and with with a specific you know thought on on return on investment in mind. For brand programmers, when when should you measure brand, Ben? When's the best time? When's the optimum time to do that? No, it's, it's really interesting. And it's kind of like, oh, we, we've touched on this a little bit. We've also talked a bit about the CEO. This is almost where the CFO comes in. You know, it's a, it's a bit chicken and egg. It's, a, it's also a very big question, I guess, for for our last 15 minutes. But I think the, the key thing is, you know, if you ask a CFO, you know, we need to measure ROI immediately. You know, a month one, you know, we've spent all this money. We've spent all this time. Soon as the brand is launched, we need to show ROI. And I feel like this is a, a trap that a lot of um, brand owners, a lot of a lot of people fall into because the pressure gets so great, they start to measure. They start to measure ROI straight away. They start to try and demonstrate it. And obviously it's impossible because kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, even amongst employees where there's this captive audience, you're not going to really see a dramatic change until the first three months. If you look at a brand with consumers, Six months is probably optimistic. It's more likely to be a year when the brand has really started to change. You know, we've got to think about brands living in people's brains that's very entrenched. It takes a lot for that to, to, to change, for the mental availability, the mental attachments that have been set up over many years for them to start to evolve. But there's that pressure there. So the smart answer is to turn around and say, we're not going to do any measurement of the brand amongst external audiences until one year out. And instead, the way you handle that conversation is you talk about simulators. And again, we, we talked a bit about the simulators for, for Pinpoint being really useful to start to understand the optimal um, experience. But here we can start to just, again, use simulators to show if we were to make, you know, to deploy our, our brand scenario 
what is the likely shift in brand preference? Where are we going to be taking preference share from? Where is, what audiences are going to respond most? And that should be that that answer for the, for the CFO. It's obviously there's there's a lot of of margin of error in that. It is a simulation. It's kind of something which isn't as robust as a real world score, but it's something you can use to manage that conversation in the short term. Um, I massively empathise with people who again are, are dealing with their CFOs, but that would be my advice just to kind of push that off. And I, I think the mantra there is that good measurement is worth the wait. You have to be patient. You have to kind of have the the the, the strength of belief based on all of the, the research and the fact-based branding behind it, and then kind of allow it to, to do its job before you start to measure the ROI. And one of the things, again, which is, is really important, you know, if we think about the secrets of, of measurement, the secrets of ROI, as well as weighting, Again, it's really important for simplicity. You know, simplicity is is kind of the thing which is absolutely critical if you want a strong return on investment. And you know, we we have the world's simplest brand study, which I'm sure a lot of people on this call have have seen. So I won't labour it too much. But this is a really great chart just to show how simplicity does pay. You know, what this shows is that the top ten brands in our world's simplest brands for 2021, how their stock performance changes over time since we began at the very beginning of our project is showing the increase in this portfolio if we were to kind of get behind it. So simplicity pays. Simplicity is a really powerful thing when we look at ROI. And again, just kind of be really clear, World Simplest Brands, we do every year. So again, kind of going back to my point, good data is, is worth the wait. If we think about how we define simplicity, because again, this is a question I often get asked explicitly, um, it really is uh, very much in line with the original definition that Alan Siegel gave back in Gosh, 1969. So if we think about it, you know, we're looking at ease of understanding how simple a company might communicate. Again, transparency, really, really important today. We're also looking at how well that brand is fulfilling customers' needs, delivering something that's valuable, delivering its promise. And we also look at usefulness, which again is tied massively to innovation. For those of you who haven't seen, um, the top brand is Google. Gosh, our, our third mention of Google for the day. We're not sponsored by Google, I promise. Um, but Google is a brand which really does fulfill a lot of these promises, let's say. And again, Netflix was our number one last year, drops one place. It's interesting when you think about their millions of users. Obviously, they they agree with us as well. Um, but definitely keep an eye on this because uh, obviously it's an interesting one with Netflix dropping one place. You know, will it regain, regain its stance next time? Will it kind of... Uh, keep continuing to drop. I think there's lots of interesting stories there. But again, like I said, we run this study once a year, really have to allow that time for the, 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 the brand to do its job, to have the impact. And that's where you start to look at ROI. Good measurement is waiting for, Good is, is worth waiting for, sorry. I love that expression, Ben. Good measurement is worth the wait. And um, it, it really is. And Ben, thank you for that. And and just by the way, the world's simplest brand index is, you know, that, that can be found on our website and can be downloaded from there as well. And there's there's plenty of interesting data which back up our you know, our philosophy of um, of one, evidence-based branding, but also, of course, great brands and simple brands. And Ben, thank you for um, enlightening us today, as ever. Lots of great learnings, and it was great to have a sort of a unpacking of some of our, our, um, our methodologies that we use at Siegel & Gale, each with their own very, very descriptive name, be it Pinpoint, be it Eyeopener, be it Decision Mapper, or be it, be it Engage. So great to hear all that from you today, Ben. Thank you for making the time for that. I, I know you're, you're a busy chap. Um, and thank you to everyone that's joined us today. Thank you for finding the time wherever you are in the world. Um, so 
It's um, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And please, if you can, join us again. Our next Unlocking Brands conversation, it will be our, in fact, it's not our Unlocking Brands, it's our Future of Branding panel. Uh, will be on Monday, March the 7th. And that is, of course, for International Women's Day 2022 celebration. So if you can, please join us then Monday, March the 7th. It's the Future of Branding panel. We have a very exciting panel team where we'll be joined by five brand leaders uh, to discuss the role marketing and brands can play as we, as we like to say, break the bias and strive for equity. So um, please join us then. But for now, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Ben. And thank you, everyone that's joined us. And um, have a good rest of the day, wherever you are. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our work and read our thought leadership on SiegelGale.com. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. While you're at it, leave us a review. See you next time.